Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. It's your host, John Barlow here, and I've got uh, an outstanding guest today, Aaron Critch. He's Professor of Orthopedic Surgery with us here at Mayo Clinic. He's the Division Chair of Sports Medicine and the Team Doctor for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Thanks for having me, John. Today, I'd like to talk about an article, and we're going to do kind of a deep dive into um, an article that you recently wrote, which really seems like it could be a practice-changing article for a lot of surgeons. The article is uh, Medial Meniscus Posterior Root Tear Treatment, a Matched Cohort Comparison of Non-Operative Management, Partial Meniscectomy, and Repair, and that was published in AJSM Volume 48 in 2020. Can you kick us off with uh, some of your thinking about uh, how this, how thinking about this problem has evolved and, and even just the idea of posterior root tears uh, and, and how that has developed in your practice or mind? Yeah. So first of all, I would say, you know, it's for orthopedic standards, it's a relatively short history. Um, you know, there was a landmark paper out of Pittsburgh in 2008, which really, you know, opened our eyes to the presence of uh, these degenerative medial meniscus root tears. And I think they're much more common uh, than what we once thought. Um, I see quite a few patients on a weekly basis with, you know, a new diagnosis of these root tears. And there's really a spectrum um, of patient presentations. So on one end, you might have a fit, healthy uh, patient that has normal alignment, normal cartilage with an isolated meniscus root tear. I think there the decision-making is straightforward. On the other end of the spectrum, you'll have someone that presents and they already have quite a bit of arthritis in the knee uh, and, a, and a root tear. And then there's the entire middle ground, which is really controversial. Um, I think the most common question I get asked is, you know, what do you do with these patients? Do you treat them non-operatively? Um, do you still consider uh, removing part of the meniscus, like a partial meniscectomy? Do you repair them? Um, how do you repair them? When do you repair them? Um, et cetera. So that's what really led, um, you know, all these questions led to try to try to develop some answers um, and really to, you know, come back and uh, bring it back to the clinic, to our patients, because honestly, I think it's important to have a agnostic mind for some of these things. Um, and we really didn't know uh, what was the best answer uh, for some of these patients. Yeah. And it's great. Obviously we've got lots of literature that focuses on natural history or complication rate or things like that. But uh, oftentimes the questions that we're asking ourselves in clinic and talking to patients are, some of these patients in whom we have substantial equipoise and we say, gosh, I got a couple different options for you. And I, and I don't know. And sometimes we use combined decision-making to try and make those decisions, but it's sure nice to have some, some data to back it up. So you had uh, a couple different groups. What was the protocol? Um, what was the protocol for the paper and who did you in include? And maybe equally important, who did you exclude from the beginning from this, uh, from this treatment algorithm or this uh, uh, decision cohort? Yeah, so I would say, you know, when you look at the literature on root repair, there's a lot of retrospective case series, and we wanted to take it a step further. Um, so we've written previous papers on, you know, kind of the natural history of non-operative management. Um, we've also looked at, you know, what's the history of patients that undergo meniscectomy. 
but what we really needed was comparing apples to apples. Um, so what we try to do is match patients. We matched by um, sex of the patient. We matched by, you know, compartment of the meniscus tear. And we tried to match uh, based on cartilage status or preoperative, you know, Kellgren-Lawrence grade. And what we really wanted, you know, was, you know, well-matched groups and then compare basically progression of arthritis and progression to arthroplasty. Um, so that was really the impetus. And we um, included only those patients that fit that strict matching criteria. So we kind of, um, I guess, remove the edges of patients and try to focus on those patients in the middle um, where we weren't quite certain what to do. Gotcha. So a lot of the patients, for instance, with substantial arthritis would have been excluded or, um, or, or um, changes like that. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So um, I, I think not to, not to give away the, not to skip to the conclusion, but I think a lot of people are going to want to learn the technique as they get to the results of this. What kind of surgical technique did you use and, um, and how has this, any, any tips on getting it right so, so we can get to the results that you got? Yeah, so I think it's it's been an evolution for us. I think we've settled on a technique that I think at least has been reproducible and relatively efficient in our hands. So uh, kind of the few pearls I would give. Um, so first of all, some of these medial compartments can be quite tight. And of course, you can't fix what you can't see. So in these cases, we have a very low threshold uh, to perform an MCL lengthening, uh, where we take a spinal needle and place some valgus stress on the knee and just get about five millimeters of opening of the medial compartment. I then take down the medial tibial spine and perform sometimes a reverse notch plasty to get a really good look um, at the root. I think then it's very important to create an anatomic uh, insertion point in the tibia. So you have to have a good guide that you feel comfortable with. There's a variety of guides on the market now by different companies. So I think you really want one that's able to hit the target. Um, and then suture configuration and placement is extremely important. Uh, we've looked at different uh, suture configurations in the lab. We found that actually a simple um, luggage tag configuration does the best. Uh, not only in terms of absolute strength, but in terms of resistance to um, cyclical loading and elongation. Uh, so when you put those elements together, uh, what we get is an anatomic transtibial pull-through technique, um, and that's been working well for us. Critically, uh, equally as important, is the rehabilitation. So I think what you have to underscore and highlight here is you have to have a motivated patient because the rehabilitation includes six weeks of toe touch weight bearing or almost mm -hmm. non-weight bearing for them. Um, we do limit their flexion to 90 degrees during the first four weeks. Um, so they're taking a couple steps backward before they're taking steps forward. So if you don't have a motivated patient that buys in to the rehabilitation, it's probably not going to work. But I think good surgical technique, good rehabilitation. That's great. And um, uh, I'm Tell us what you found with the study. What, what, what did you show? What was the difference between the, the groups that you found? Yeah, so it's interesting. So our, our primary endpoint um, was basically progression of arthritis. And we looked at Kellgren-Lawrence grades kind of before and after. And then we also looked at progression to arthroplasty. And with both endpoints, what we found um, is that the repair group did very well. In fact, they really didn't have any progression of arthritis. And they didn't have any progression to arthroplasty. When we looked at non-operative management, it mirrored our natural history study. So there were um, a moderate amount of patients, um, about uh, a third to a half that progressed with arthritis and progressed to arthroplasty. 
And then what was a little surprising, um, or I guess at least um, illustrative, was that the patients that underwent a knee arthroscopy and just got a debridement, they actually progressed more quickly um, to requiring arthroplasty. Um, so now there could be some patient-specific factors there, um, you know, in terms of pain and pain tolerance and different things. But it was interesting that that actually, you know, uh, accelerated the progression of arthritis in those knees. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, uh, do you, uh, would you say that this data is compelling enough that patients with very minimal symptoms should be considered for surgery? Like, how do you use this in the day-to-day? Somebody's got a, let's say they've got a meniscal root tear and they say, I've been doing my rehab and it's feeling a little better by the time they get plugged in. Are, are you feeling strongly enough about this that you say, gosh, this may be protective for you over time, or is it still driven by immediate symptoms while they're in your office? Yeah. So, so first of all, at least <laughs> I know definitively that I'm not going to debride any of these, uh, that sure. clearly makes it worse and doesn't help them. So then when you come down to repair, what's really nice is that I now have this data to present to patients and we can really develop a shared uh, decision-making. And a lot of patients, you'll lay this out for them. And I think it's important that, you know, I would say maybe seven or eight years ago when I'd see these patients in clinic, I would kind of dribble in the backcourt a little bit first. I would give them injection. I would do therapy, you know, maybe three months down the road, they weren't better. Now we decided to do surgery. Now I really, as soon as we identify that tear, I make the decision with them because I know if we're going to repair it, we need to repair it early. Um, We know that these patients can have very quick progression of arthritis. We've shown in another study based on serial MRIs that patients went from grade two to grade four chondromalacia in a period of five months. So the clock is really ticking when they start to see you in clinic. Um, So after discussing this data with them, I would say a lot of patients, again, if they're motivated to undergo the rehabilitation, um, feel that it makes sense uh, to undergo repair. And uh, certainly we do that if their cartilage is intact and their alignment is good. And over time, I would say now I'm, I'm, moving a little bit more early to surgery, or at least that decision to perform surgery uh, for these patients based on this data. That's helpful. And and it looks like the follow-up was relatively long. I see 74 months uh, mean follow-up. So it seems like this solution is durable, at least uh, in the intermediate uh, time period. Yeah, the longest follow-up, um, there's a, a paper out of Korea that has uh, basically eight to nine-year follow-up, and their results were similar in a repair group. They had a 92% success rate in terms of uh, no arthroplasty or progression of arthritis. So at least, you know, we, we always have to wait for, for longer-term data, but in the uh, midterm, things look good. Well, and if you can push off, if you knew you could push off a total knee or a unicompartmental knee arthroplasty, even for that long, I think most people would probably go through that rehab for that kind of longevity. So that's, that's, um, that's really helpful. Is this something that uh, a lot of probably surgeons who maybe didn't train very recently or otherwise would say that, uh, or, or haven't used a lot of the advanced diagnostic techniques for imaging this, is this something that you would say is is very common in the medial knee pain in the middle age patient? Is it something that's sort of a, a unicorn? How do we, um, how, how, how should surgeons who, let's say, are in community practice, they say, I, I get a lot of patients each week that have medial knee pain. How do you get them through this algorithm? Is it something they should be looking for in everybody to, to be thinking about? Or is there a 
is there a certain patient who you say this is this is classic and and I'd really be worried about it in this group? Yeah, so I think it's something that everyone uh, can and should recognize. Um, most of these present with the acute onset of pain. So I would say in that middle age group, that's, you know, less common, um, you know, compared to arthritis, which would have more of a waxing, waning, you know, insidious onset. There, people for the most part can recall uh, an injury event, uh, even though it's seemingly minor. You know, I just stepped off, misstepped off a curb. I, I got up off a low chair or couch, uh, but most of them will be able to recall that. And I think what's striking about these patients is they have profoundly more pain than, than most of your patients. So when you watch them walk, for example, they'll just look like they're walking on a bone bruise um, or a fracture. I mean, it's very, you know, it's, it's almost dramatic because you can just see how painful it is. And unfortunately, these are patients 15 years ago where we didn't recognize it. And we saw an x-ray that looked normal and, you know, we weren't reading on the MRI. So unfortunately, we missed a lot of these and attributed um, some sort of psychiatric mm -hmm. diagnosis probably <laughs> to these patients. Uh, but they're very symptomatic. And then I think if you know what to look for, you know, on the MRI, um, I think the, the thing that helps me the most is looking at the extrusion on coronal. So if you see two to three millimeters of extrusion on a coronal, you better uh, really scrutinize the posterior horn. And then when you look at your sagittal cuts, uh, there's something called a ghost sign, which is right where the root uh, should attach, but it's not attached and it's extruded. So you'll just see this white shadow or this ghost sign. So I think those are all important things to look for. And I think everyone can and should recognize it. Beautiful. Any specific weaknesses that, to this study? No, no author likes to point out their weaknesses. They always put the, the section in the uh, article, but anything that we should be thinking about as we interpret this study or try not to maybe overinterpret the results of this study in our practice? Well, I think whenever you're comparing non-randomized treatment groups, there'll always be bias um, in it. Uh, there'll be bias on the part of the surgeon. There'll be bias on the part of the patients, you know, for selecting a certain treatment modality. So that's why we tried to keep um, things relatively objective, um, you know, in terms of progression of arthritis and um, need for, you know, conversion to arthroplasty. Um, I think there needs to be uh, still some prospective um, randomization, um, you know, um, there's still some different subgroups where, you know, if, if you look at someone with malalignment, for example, um, you know, do they need an osteotomy or can they get away without an osteotomy, for example, when you're repairing this meniscus? And I honestly don't know the answer to that. I think um, some of these subgroups perhaps looking at a little bit more closely would be beneficial. And I think we can, I think with the, with the, how common this is, and especially looking at multi-center fashion, we'd be able to answer some of those questions fairly easily. Got it. Any, and um, any new techniques that you see in the next few years that this is just going to, that's going to be dramatically changed? Or do you think that the techniques that you've described are probably sort of through the most of the evolution and, and will stabilize? No, there's, there's certainly always room for improvement and mother nature always wins. Those are two things <laughs> I've, I've always learned. Um, so what I would say here, when we look at this technique, this transtibial repair technique, healing rate is very high. Um, in our hands, 98% on MRI at six months. So that's great news. Uh, patients are doing great. That's great news. But what we're seeing is that the meniscus is still extruded, um, especially menisci that had major extrusion defined as greater than three millimeters. So now 
what we're adding is a technique called centralization, where we try to bring that meniscus back into the compartment, uh, and then we perform uh, the root repair. So we think that um, certainly if you had your choice, you wouldn't want the meniscus to be extruded. You would want it to resist hoop stress, to be chondroprotective, to prevent arthritis and function like a normal meniscus over time. So that's what we're really targeting now is looking at the centralization, bringing the meniscus back into the compartment. Will that lead to improved um, outcomes, more longevity? I think time will tell. Perfect. Well, um, I'll try and sort of summarize uh, this this article, and you can correct me where I'm where I make mistakes and misquote you. But it sure sounds like um, you, we snuck up on this topic over several years in terms of meniscal root re uh, root repairs, and there was thought that it may uh, be helping patients. But this is one of the higher levels of evidence in terms of comparing a cohort of uh, as close as possible, equally matched patients, and not only did it uh, seemed to pr protect them in terms of immediate symptoms, but also protected them in terms of uh, progression to total knee with a very, very low rate of total knee arthroplasty and a very high rate of, of healing in this uh, group. Um, it sounds like it's probably technique dependent. The techniques are evolving, but that this technique was uh, solid. And uh, while it will continue to evolve, it sounds like it's probably something that uh, the average surgeon the community surgeon who's seeing a high volume of knee patients should be facile in terms of the technique, because it sure seems you could make a dramatic difference in patient outcomes. Um, obviously, we, we'd like to get level one evidence, but it, this, is, uh, this is a fairly compelling argument to consider uh, either learning the technique if you don't, don't know it or, or sending high-risk patients to somebody who does. Any, any, other, any other thoughts about that? Nope. Couldn't have said it better myself. Perfect. Well, thanks for all the hard work. Thanks for putting this article together. And we look forward to uh, more work out of, out of your, out of our and your group on uh, meniscal root repairs and, and uh, following this technique evolve and hopefully uh, avoiding me needing to get, needing to get a unicompartmental knee replacement someday. S sounds great. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks Aaron for joining.